Father in heaven, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, uh, that it stands firm and secure and it is immovable. And that heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will not pass away. Um, what great and wonderful promises we have in it. And I pray, God, even when we are dealing with a book that may seem that we don't have any uh, resemblance to or, or hard for us to um, identify with, like Deuteronomy, that we would uh, be given the, the grace of the Holy Spirit in understanding through illumination, that you would bless the text to our hearts and to our minds, and that you would um, just fill us, Lord, uh, with what we need to know. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Okay. So we're in Deuteronomy 23. If you remember, we were dealing with the section that's on purity. And the main overall, I mean, I don't know if you want to call it banner idea or banner verse uh, that's going on here is, is uh, chapter 22, verse 22. If a man's found lying with a married woman and both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Uh, the whole idea is... is encapsulated in what does it mean to not commit adultery in in the ten commandments when you go through and you read those what does that actually look like and it's talking about purity of the greatest form we often look at it in the negative because of the do nots that come up there but uh that's just a much more succinct way of saying it than do this 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 and this and this and it also eliminates a lot of questions um, so the idea here is, is, is one of purity and it lasts into 23 verse 18. We're not going to get that far today. We're only going to get to verse eight because of some of the things that are going on. Some of the things I want us to take a look at and maybe wrestle and think through. So, uh, in chapter 23, uh, so forgive me in chapter 22, verse 30, uh, a lot of this has to deal with, um, intimacy, sexuality, interpersonal relationships private relationships however you want to say that and the idea in verse 30 a man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt uh, that closes off chapter 22 uh, in dealing with those types of relationships with the importance of the hierarchical structure of a family how god's purposely designed a family we see instances of that as whatever's happened with Noah and his sons uh, that's taken place. But you will also find the uncover his father's skirt or uncover his father's nakedness, some of them say. Um, we are not to corrupt and dishonor the relationship with our fathers is essentially what it is. Uh, now, I'm, I want to I say this because I think this is important. And it just comes to my mind because of some uh, advice situations that I've been in, which may seem weird. Um, but when you're dealing with a whole bunch of new Christians and they're not really for sure how to operate these things, uh, there's a lot to be said about being careful as far as the nudity of parents before their children and when that's acceptable and when that's not acceptable. Uh, such as, well, we're just in the bathroom together. Well, I'm just getting ready. Well, it's not a big deal. Uh, those types of things. Uh, to a point, I think we have to be very discerning about how old a child uh, whenever, how old a child is when those types of relationships, especially between opposite sex, between parent and child, becomes unacceptable and, and, and uh, be very just aware of that. Now, I know that sounds like a very strange thing to bring up. The Word of God talks about that. I can't remember off the top of my head right now where it was. I should have been better prepared on that one. Uh, but there's a lot to be said about the respect that takes place in preserving the marriage covenant, and that even is in the face of the children. Uh, so it's important to recognize there's a difference there. It's kind of like, um, 
it's kind of like whenever Nathaniel, whenever, remember, whenever my wife says to Nathaniel, you know, Nathaniel, I love you. And he'll say something like, and you love daddy? And she'll say, yeah. And, and he said, and, sh- and she'll say, but I love daddy in a different way than I love you. That's a really good, I think, idea to put in their heads to begin with, is that there are different types of love, and not every type of love is to be exercised in every relationship and situation. I don't know why I felt impressed that I needed to say that, but just thought it was important. So chapter 23, verse 1. This deals with some strange, strange, <laughs> awkward things. So, yeah, for those of you who don't know, Jamie has books that she goes through and she writes the scriptures out in her own handwriting. Uh, and it's probably helped a lot to navigate through and, and retain a lot of the information yeah, that you learn. I just learned. finished Deuteronomy last week or the week before. And yep. There's a few giggleable things that I know we're going to be going. Giggleable. There you go. I think that's in the Hebrew. The giggleable things. These are these are the giggleable things, Israel. Chapter twenty-three, verse one. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. Now, some things real quick, just to make sure that we're up to speed. Uh, this is talking about eunuchs in particular. The reason is, is because this was often a practice that was taken on in pagan cultures, which seems very odd because pagan cultures were oftentimes driven forward by sexual promiscuity and depravity and those types of things. So for the idea to think that you would actually be in that situation and and that not be going on uh, is very odd uh, to think about. We have some evidence in 1 Corinthians 7, I believe it is, where Paul says that some people have so committed themselves to the to the Lord where they have become eunuchs for his name's sake because they didn't want sexual desire to, to dissuade them from obeying the Lord fully. Uh, I can't understand that in a 21st century culture, um, so I, I don't fully understand that. But, but what we are seeing is, number one, it's not just that sex is something that is powerful and that Satan has used it to manipulate it uh, in order to make it um, dirty or awful or sinful or those types of things, totally against what God has created. But you also see the, also see the idea of the value of the male organ. So let me give you an example. Whenever you, you have the time for Isaac to have a wife, and whenever Abraham tells his servant, go to the land that we came from and find a wife for Isaac there, and it says, put your hand on my thigh and swear to me. That's not his thigh that he's putting his hand on to swear to him, okay? That's a very uh, PG-rated version of exactly what it's saying as far as swearing. And so there's a lot to be said about how God has designed, um, especially the male sex organs, uh, and especially the idea of what circumcision and uncircumcision r- represented at that time as far as being God's covenant people. Um, again, our culture has taken those types of things to such a place um, to where it all, almost seems shameful that we can't talk about those things in church settings. And that's totally, totally wrong. We should take it back to the scriptures and really ask the question, how were they? How was God viewing this from the beginning? And why were things done like this? So notice, it wasn't a signing of a contract or a handshake at that time. It was something about the very progeny of the promise of God continuing forward through Isaac and his seed, because he was the promised child of which this agreement was made. And that's what causes a servant to go forward uh, with that confidence. It's all based on the promise that God was giving. So another interesting thing here is notice the idea he shall be cut off, or sorry, his male male organ cut off, shall enter 
the assembly of Yahweh. This word enter here has the idea of being full participation in the Hebrew. It's not the idea of just walking through a door. It's the idea of walking through a door because you're going to sit down on the couch and have conversation. You're going to go to the table and you're going to eat. You're going to lay your head there in order to go to sleep. It's the idea of being fully enacted with that. And what it's talking about here with the assembly of Yahweh would be the festivals that would go on, uh, the observances and the worship that would take place for Israel in those early times. Um, so there's there's a lot more going on here. And why is it that one who is emasculated or has their male organ cut off, why can they not be there? For one reason and one reason only. They're not considered pure for worship. That's it. Well, what if they converted? What if they uh, became uh, proselytes to Judaism and those types of things? They're still considered impure for the situation. Now, we can immediately jump on the bag wagon and say, why is God being so discriminatory in this? You know, this discrimination is ridiculous. Uh, it may be, but he also sets a standard for purity. We may not understand that from our perspective, but the idea of how God is to be worshipped, it is in holiness and impurity, and he is uncompromising in that completely. Now this moves into the next part of it, verse 2 here. Oh, and real quick, Yahweh, all caps L-O-R-D, the self-existent one, I am that I am. We have to remember uh, that his name is being exercised in that way. Verse 2, no one of illegitimate birth shall enter, there it is again, be in full participation, the assembly of Yahweh uh, being involved in the worship again of illegitimate birth. This is the idea of mixed marriages, of what comes out of that, and also of incestual relationships. Okay, and we're going to see how that's going to display itself. Now, you might say, wait a second, is there anything really wrong with mixed marriages? I would say no today, but as far as what they were dealing with at that time with Israel being pure, I mean, think about this real quick. If you remember back when we talked about finances and how Israel is to conduct themselves financially, they're not to borrow from any other nations, correct? And notice that we wouldn't get upset about that, and we wouldn't see conflict with that. God's got a reason why he doesn't want them dabbling with other nations. God's got a reason why he wants them to destroy all of the worship articles and artifacts and whatever else it is, paraphernalia that they have for all of these false gods. And we don't necessarily get too upset about that as well because he's seeking to keep his people pure. It's the same idea here as well. And you say, well, how in the world could that be? How many people do you know of have gotten in a situation where there were two different belief systems, and, and I'm saying even as narrow as we want to call that, which I don't think it is, but, it, but we want to be sympathetic, as narrow as it is between Protestant and Catholic, of which has caused division in the home is regarding belief systems. Do we know of those instances? Mm -hmm. Do we know of, of, you know, well, one person attends this church, but the other person attends this church. Well, should they be attending church together as a married family? I mean, isn't there marriage because God's the one who created marriage before the fall? You see what I'm saying? There's a lot that is contradictory there that goes on. Well, now imagine the idea of having a mixed marriage that goes on, offspring that is taken over uh, or, or that comes forth, and you've got someone from Canaan, and you're trying to deal with that. Now, of course, we all back up as good, thoroughbred Christian people. Say, well, they shouldn't have married pagans to begin with. Don't you know that you're not supposed to be unequally yoked? You know, we start quoting New Testament in this situation. Well, they can't do that at this time. Uh, so notice it's a mark of saying this relationship was not handled in purity, and so therefore you can't enter into that. So notice it says, none of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. He reiterates it. And when he's talking about the 10th generation, does that mean that the 11th generation is okay to go in? That's not what it's talking about. He's using a large number like that 10th generation because essentially he's speaking about the idea of forever. 
forever they're not allowed to come into the assembly and worship. Um, again, do we fully understand God's reasoning behind that? No. But what we do know is that his entire uh, point here is the idea of purity. Now watch this, because this is interesting. Verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, even uh, sorry, shall ever enter the assembly of Yahweh. So again, tenth generation forever. But it's interesting they bring up these two instances, Ammonites and Moabites. Now, through our map up here, because I wanted us to see this, when you think about they came out of Israel and they came in, you have the Moabites down here, and then you've got the Ammonites right here. Now, does anybody know why? Verse 3 comes after verse 2. No mixed marriages. They're trying to, he's trying to separate his people from the, the other cultures. And um, aren't Moab and Ammon uh, indirectly related to them? Yes. How? You can't pick it off the top of my head. Is that Esau? Nope. Esau's the Edomites. Was that Ishmael's kids? Nope. No. I don't remember. Yes. A little bit further. Everybody everybody remember Lot? Oh. Oh! (laughs) I love it. All the lights come on. And if you remember, he fled from Sodom and Gomorrah because the idea is going to be destroyed. But then his daughters got him drunk. None of the guys left with us. And so then they have incestual relationships. And now you brought forward these nations of the Ammonites and the Moabites. Now, here's what's crazy about this is we're going to see this very interesting shift. It wasn't just the fact that it was an ancestral relationship, even though the relationship was into Abraham's line in some way. But watch how this unfolds. Look at verse 4. Because here's the reason why the Ammonite and the Moabite shall never worship God with Israel. Look what it says. They did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pether of Mesopotamia to curse you. Two reasons that are given. The reason is, is because any time that a people group were traveling through a land, it was just considered Middle Eastern courtesy at that time to at least give them the opportunity to buy food and water. I mean, what do people have to lose on that if you've got it to spare? You're you're, you're going to get something in exchange, whether it be cattle or coin or, or whatever. You're going to have some sort of compensation for what you've grown or the water that you've gotten together. But the fact that they didn't even want to care for them in that way, if you remember, God rose them up and they ended up dominating this section. And if you remember... At the very beginning of the book, they actually conquered all the way up into this area up here, but when they took over all of Bashan. So this this was a massive 160-mile conquest of all these cities and everything that happened on the east side of, of uh, the uh, Jordan River and all of that. So this was a whole other deal. So notice, at this time, God's saying, they can never worship with you whatsoever. The second part was is the issue with Balaam. Does everybody remember that? Balak and Balaam, that that Idiot. yeah, exactly. They he heard that they were coming. They're a great and mighty people. They might overtake us, and so I'm going to send out. And we're talking about the Mesopotamia, okay? 
So we're talking about he went up the Fertile Crescent, if we had the rest of it to look, look at, they went up the Fertile Crescent up here and followed the Euphrates River down into a situation to where he's going to go and get a prophet of Yahweh to pronounce curses against Yahweh's people. That's weird. Now here's what it tells you, two things. Number one, Balak, or Balak, however you say his name, he knew that obviously Balaam had a reputation for being a prophet of the Most High God. Number two, how it ever escaped him whatsoever that Israel was God's chosen people because of the news that had happened that had come forth of what went down in Egypt, I, I, don't, I don't begin to understand. But that thing spread like wildfire of what Yahweh had done to that nation. So how they forgot about that or how he forgot about that, or maybe he overlooked it and he just didn't care. He was trying to scrape for a solution. We don't know. But because of those decisive acts, the Ammonite and the Moabite will not be able to worship with them. Now, Here's where it gets really strange. Look, it says in verse, uh, let me see here. Yeah, verse 5. Nevertheless, Yahweh, your Elohim, was not willing to listen to Balaam, but Yahweh, your Elohim, turned the curse into a blessing for you because, this is so important to understand, because the God of the Old Testament is not just a cruel and cold God. He's all about covenants and contracts. Because Yahweh, your Elohim, loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. Now stop for a second. You would be a wise Israelite if today you simply looked at Deuteronomy 23 verses, uh, let's see here, 3 through 6, and you recognize that all of your foreign policy and peace agreements will have nothing to do with those sections of the Moabites and the Ammonites. None. None whatsoever. Well, isn't God about peace and world peace? Honestly, no, he's not. He's not about world peace because he refuses to shake hands with sin. That's insane. That's why the peace that he brings comes through a person, not through a, a military uprising or anything like that. It's when Jesus Christ comes back and he judges decisively that he establishes his kingdom. And this is why the Old Testament, Daniel especially, harps on this idea of a kingdom coming made without hands that dominates all other kingdoms, that decimates all other kingdoms, and that it stands on its own. It's because people come to peace in the world on God's terms, not on, well, we made this happen and we shook hands with this person. That's what Solomon was trying to do later on in his life. And it ended up causing him to marry a whole lot of women that led his heart astray after other gods. Again, mixed marriage problem. You can't tell me that in Solomon's lifetime, he was like, yeah, we'll build all these altars to these other gods, but you girls can't come in and worship Yahweh the Most High. I guarantee you that he capitulated on that as well. And so it violates this situation right here. All kinds of problems stem out of it. Now, here's what's great. Verse 7. You shall not detest an Edomite. For he is your brother. Esau. Esau. Yep. Now why? Think back to what you know about Jacob and Esau's relationship. Well, Esau wasn't such a good guy. Esau was kind of a dramatic whiner. That's what we saw. <laughs> even, even, though, even though he was yeah, out in the field, he, he kind of was. <laughs> We're never going to get these to go. Um, just think about some Star Wars lines. That's exactly right. But anyway, um, think about it, right? I'm going to give up my birthright for Stu. He's negligent. He's irresponsible. Uh, he obviously has got away with, with uh, hunting, which was great. 
he whined and he cried because he didn't get the, the full blessing of his father. Instead, Jacob came in. Remember, Jacob's not such a great guy. He swindled his brother. Uh, in all fairness, I don't hold the birthright thing against him. I mean, you, you got a hyperdramatic person. He took advantage of a, of a situation. It was a smooth transaction as far as I'm concerned. That was just Esau being dumb. But as far as going in and swindling out the blessing, that was that was bad. Yeah, okay? and had mom and dad have a backup on it too. Exactly. Yeah, which was real weird. Having the parents divided, yeah. you know. That and nothing grates on me like when Jacob loved Joseph more than his brothers. That kills me, man. You want to know where all those family problems came from? It was that. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, um, think about this real quick. After Jacob did this, what was Esau's response? He wanted to what? Wanted to kill him. He's going to die. And so Jacob flees, right? Finds Leah. Finds Rachel. Has kids. And he comes back. And he finds Esau. Has everybody, anybody ever read the encounter? Like you want to picture it like a Mexican standoff, but it really doesn't <laughs> like come down like that, does it? It's full of forgiveness. It's full of love. It's full of grace. It's full of acceptance. It's really, really great. So here's what's interesting about that. For he is your brother. Which speaks of the familiar relationship was still intact towards the end. Now, did Esau have a choice to despise Jacob, try to kill Jacob, slaughter his family, leave him for dead and be done with it? Yeah, he could have taken that approach and the hand of God would have been against him. But notice that Esau didn't go off of the pages of scripture like that. Now, here's why I bring that up, because notice he had a favorable response to Jacob that accepted him afterwards, and this is so important for us to grasp. Look at the next part here. You shall not detest an Egyptian. Now, let me ask you this. At the point that this was written, does Israel have every reason in the world to hate Egyptians? Good grief. Imagine what those people were put through. And then when they thought they were free, they turned around and found out they were following them. And they're scared to death. I mean, it's a horrible situation to be let go from slavery and then recognize I might not be as free as I thought I was. But notice what it says. It gives the reason. Because you were an alien in his land. The sons of the third generation who are born to them, to Edom and to Egypt, may enter the assembly of Yahweh. After three generations... Esau's people and the Egyptians can come in and worship the Lord alongside Israel. What is wrong with God? Why is he letting that happen? Well, do we remember how long that Israel resided in the land unharmed? A few hundred years. A few hundred years. Everybody remember Joseph was there? And they showed kindness. And Pharaoh showed kindness to him. It was only until, and if you remember, the scripture is very exact about this then there came one who what who did not know joseph and his ways did not know about israel coming in the way that he did you see what i'm saying it might have only been like the last generation or two that uh, that all the slavery and stuff like that took place yes that's what it seems like it was they weren't enslaved for that entire time It it seems to be the pharaoh who didn't take note of that and that pharaoh's son successor And that's it. But man, for the longest time, they were kind to them. And this brings us to two places. Number one, turn to Genesis 12. Again, a pivotal, defining framework point 
in Scripture. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We can't study it enough. We can't know it enough. We can't memorize it enough because it defines everything that flows forward out of Scripture. Everything. All the way to the end of the, of the New Testament. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your relatives. Remember, he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, so that's down by the Persian Gulf is where he was. He says, And from your relatives... And from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. There's the promise of seed. And I will bless you. There is the blessing that's going to take place. And make your name great. He's going to be a man of renown. And so you shall be a blessing. Or in other words, you will be blessed and you are to bless others. Nations outside of yourself. Now watch this because this is important. This is where this is played out. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse you. Sorry. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now we often take that as only the coming of the Messiah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with us saying that that's part of the Messiah. But there's more because of what is brought up before in verse 3. If you bless Israel, you will be blessed. But if you curse Israel... You will be cursed. And here's what's amazing. Those last two generations of pharaohs in Egypt, they were cursed. And they were dealt with. They were decimated. In fact, it's very interesting to see, after that event happens, and they're swallowed up in the Red Sea, how much time transpires until you see Egypt becoming a major player again in the Old Testament. Quite a few years go, go by. It took a long time for them to recover from the spanking that Yahweh gave them, okay? But the goodness that was shown to them before was not forgotten at all, and huge blessing comes out of this. And with that being said, I want you to turn to Isaiah 19. And I think I've shared this with you before, but I want to share it again because it's just one of the most profound passages in the Bible. Especially thinking about you know, if you start at the beginning of Genesis and you're reading through and thinking about what transpires in Egypt, it's incredible. Isaiah 19. Of course, this is Isaiah pronouncing as part of the word of the Lord. And in chapter 19, verse 1, just try to follow this along. We're not going to elaborate and explain everything, but when we get towards the end, we need to slow down and pay a little bit of attention that goes on. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Now, everybody remember, Egypt wasn't just filled with idols. They were ruled over by lesser gods. Does everybody remember that? Celestial beings and the plagues were God going, was, was Yahweh God going to war with the little G gods, okay? Verse 2. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. So notice, they're going to be in a supernatural... Um, 
no, no, it's say it sounds dumb, but a, but a negative supernatural situation as far as guidance and blessing and those types of things. Okay. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them. Declares Adonai Yahweh of hosts. Now, real quick, remember capital L, lowercase O R D. Adonai it means master, and then when you have all caps G O D. That goes from Elohim, which is capital G, lowercase O-D, to Yahweh when it's when it's partnered with Adonai. So anytime you see all caps G-O-D, it becomes Yahweh in the translation. But don't lose sight of the fact it says of hosts. What does that mean? Spiritual beings. Spiritual beings. All celestial beings. All heavenly hosts, angels, powers, principalities, doesn't matter. He is, he is God over all of the unseen realm. Okay? So it says here, the waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The camels will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament. And all those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn. And those who spread nets on the water will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from the, com from the combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected and the pillars of Egypt will be crushed. All the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. The princes of Zone, that's a province there, are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Well then, where are your wise men? Please let me tell you and let them understand what Yahweh of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zone have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of their tribes have led Egypt astray. Yahweh has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. There will be no work for Egypt, which its head or tail, its palm branch or bulrush may do. Now, that is all some pretty severe, very graphic destruction and judgment. And notice this, this is so important to get. Notice that it's not just your stuff's not going to grow. Notice that it's also a psychological warfare that takes place on them. That's crazy. That's how God fights against people who have denied his name or run away from him. Now, here's what's moving. Verse 16. In that day. Pay attention to that phrase. Okay? Because now we're talking about the great day of the Lord. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women. Now, don't take that offensively, ladies. Okay? Uh, they will become like women and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of Yahweh of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of Yahweh of hosts, which he is purposing against them. Now stop for a second. Does everybody see up until this time that there is a great humbling that has taken place, that Yahweh's hand is against them? Everybody got that? Yes? Now, we see some hope that is completely beyond, I wouldn't believe that this was in the Bible if you told me if I hadn't read it for myself, okay? 
It says here, verse 18, In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. Now, does everybody see what that just said? There's going to come a time when five cities in Egypt will be speaking the language of the promised land, and they are going to be worshipers. They are actually going to pledge themselves to Yahweh, the creator. Now, for Egypt, we would sit here and think, no, they're no good, they're junk, they, they uh, oppressed God's people, and, and God judged them decisively. He has no room for them. There's no grace for them. They're just pieces of trash. We might come to that. Just notice that's not the case here. He says here, verse 19, in that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt. So they're actually going to build a place of worship in Egypt so that God can be respectfully reverenced. And a pillar to Yahweh near its border. In other words, when you come into the border of Egypt, you will know that it belongs to God. Okay? It will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors and he will send them a savior and a champion and he will deliver them thus Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day they will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to Yahweh and perform it and I just wrote next to my Bible where that ends wow that's amazing it's incredible to think, even in the midst of, I mean, that place was heavily in, embedded with polytheism. We just worship anything that moves and it represents anything that we want. And they're going to, God is going to come in and bring a savior and a champion for them. And all of a sudden, everybody's going to be monotheistic. There is one God. His name is Yahweh. It's incredible to me. Verse 22, Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking, but healing. Because that's what he can do. He disciplines and then he restores. So they will return to Yahweh and he will respond to them and will heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now, if you don't remember who the Assyrians are, when the kingdom broke up into two areas and Israel became the northern and Judah was the southern kingdom the Assyrians are the people who marched over in 722 BC and destroyed everything that was there and led the ten tribes off into captivity by putting hooks that were chained together through their jaws and leading them back and then they would kill them skin them and use their skin to clothe their furniture and cut holes in the top of their heads and put them on stakes and light them on fire so that they could hang out and watch Matlock that's what they used to do <laughs> Insane. They were they were brutal, scary, just war machine people. I don't know what else to call them. They were destructive and lewd and depraved, and they were just, you didn't want to mess with Assyria. You know what it's telling me here? Egypt and Assyria are going to get together, and they're going to worship Yahweh. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody's too far gone. It's incredible to me. Verse 24, in that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. You know what that tells me? It tells me that, that there's something going on in the Middle East 
When we talk about all of those areas that encompass it, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, all that stuff, that belongs to God, period. It's his plot of real estate. And this is why the idea of the land, I've told you anytime you go through, you see the land brought up, market. This is why it's so important. And that's why the promise extends as far as it does from the Nile to the Euphrates all the way across that section. So it's, it's, it's mind-blowing to think about this. But notice, they will be a blessing in the midst of the earth. Why? Because God already promised that would be the case in Genesis 12, 3. That's how it's going to happen. But here's a verse that gets me. It says here, verse 25, Whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. You think about that Yahweh is going to call Egypt his people? What? What? The way he paddled them before? Yeah. That's his grace. And Assyria, the work of my hands. Wow. That's insane. And Israel, my inheritance. In other words, Israel's greatest enemies are going to become her brothers. That's the grace of God. That's what's going to happen in the end. The nations are going to come alongside Israel, and they're all going to be wholly devoted to worshiping the creator of all things. That's incredible. And why do, you, why, why do we think that is? I'll I tell you why I think that is. I think it's because Egypt was gracious in welcoming Jacob and the 70 that were with him into this situation, that God paved the way with Joseph. And because that Pharaoh and subsequent generations responded favorably to those people, even though they messed it up on the last two, it shows that God does not forget a good deed given, and there is eternal reward and glory that pours out of that because of their generosity. No one is too far gone. Not one person. So don't ever let your, your mind disqualify you in sharing the gospel with somebody because it hasn't thought much of them. Who knows what God's going to do with that, that person? He can do this with nations. Why can't he do that with one individual? Any thoughts about this before we close up? This is just such an incredible passage of scripture. I think you said it all when you said, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just mind-blowing to me. It really is. So let's pray. God, I thank you that uh, when you talk about purity of worship and you talk about um, a proper reverence and understanding of how we need to approach you and we can't do so flippantly, uh, we also think about how the good deeds and the mercies that were shown to Israel in the Old Testament have given way to their opportunity of acceptance for Egypt before your presence and not to be cast away and not to be burned in eternal destruction, uh, but the idea that they would actually be alongside Israel worshiping you and you will actually call them your people, and that's just beyond my understanding. Uh, but Father, I always underestimate your grace. You are always more gracious than I can possibly understand. And we thank you that we serve a great God of grace. Please bless us this week. And may we just reflect on this periodically and, and just be blown away by how profound your love is. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.